Imagine a world where Italians don't have tomatoes, Mexicans don't have garlic, and Indians don't have chilies. Frankly, that's a world I don't want to live in. But let's discuss how we narrowly avoided that by one historical event on this episode of Delicious History. Welcome back to the show. As always, I'm Dave Militello. Delicious History is a weekly podcast designed to teach listeners not just how history affected food, but how food has affected history. For more information, follow us on our Facebook and Instagram pages, both at Delicious History Podcast and our website at delicioushistorypodcast.com. This week, we're going to be changing things up a bit. Since we started the show, everything has been rather episodic, with a particular story being the focus of each episode. But there are certain concepts in history that are going to keep popping their head up again and again and again and again and again that really need to be explained well. Otherwise, I would have to take the time to explain at the beginning of every episode involving these concepts and give us less time for these fascinating stories themselves. As you can see by the title of this episode, I'm going to be calling these foundational series episodes. And whenever the concepts come up, instead of explaining the backgrounds in great detail, I'll just refer to a particular foundational series episode. Honestly, there are some particular themes out there that play a huge role in a lot of stories we'll be talking about, and frankly, they could have a whole season or even a whole podcast dedicated just to that concept. Since we're going to be talking about very large, sweeping ideas and concepts, we're not really going to be getting into any detail. Keep that in mind for every one of these foundational episodes, we probably have enough information for dozens if not hundreds of individual episodes. So if I mention a particular concept during this episode and don't really explain it, that's the reason why. Today we'll be talking about one of the most influential events, not just in food history, but in the history of the world as a whole, the Columbian Exchange. This was a term coined by Harvard historian Alfred Crosby in 1972 with a book called, wait for it, The Columbian Exchange. Christopher Columbus gets poo-pooed because he really wasn't the first person to discover the Americas. Just the fact of Christopher Columbus discovering America is a very problematic statement, considering the fact that A, many Europeans had been to the Americas as well as possibly explorers from Asia well before Columbus was around, B, he never stepped foot on what later would be the United States, and C, he only discovered America in the same way that you discovered your local Popeyes. People had been there for a long, long time before Christopher Columbus ever dreamt of the idea of the New World. But one thing that Columbus does deserve credit for when it comes to all this discovery business is that he was directly responsible for the world changing really overnight. See, people had been trading ideas and food items for millennia before Columbus was around. We could think of chickens making their way to Europe from Southeast Asia, wheat making its way to China from the Fertile Crescent, and watermelon going all over the place from Africa. Of course, these are very limited examples, but you get the idea. Something that's so incredible about the colonialization of the New World by the Spanish was the vast amount of plants, animals, and even diseases making their way to both sides of the Atlantic. As a result, the world has never been the same since, both for better and for worse. So let's take a look at what the Spanish encountered when they first landed on the shores of the Americas. 
Obviously, this world was very alien to them, since they had evolved in a very different way, independently from that of Europe. Their customs were different, the languages are obviously very different, and the food well, almost unrecognizable in some ways. While there are plenty of mixed feelings about how good of a thing the Colombian exchange actually was, I figured I'd let you be the judge for yourself. For the sake of keeping things neat and clean, let's start out with some of the arguably positive effects. To begin with, there were very few domesticated animals in the New World. In the Andes region, for example, the only domesticated animal for food was the guinea pig. And even then, that was only eaten on special occasions. Up north in Central America, the only domesticated food animal was the turkey. Of course, people here did eat other types of meat, but they were typically hunted. The one exception would be back in the Incan territory, where they would eat llamas and alpacas, but only after they had already died. Although there were wild versions called guanaco and vicuñas that were regularly hunted for their meat. The main value of domesticated llama and alpaca were as beasts of burden and for their wool, not as meat. Europeans, on the other hand, brought with them cattle, sheep, goats, pigs, chickens, and horses. These obviously were not only great sources of easily available protein, but especially with cattle that were used as oxen and horses, cultivating land and transportation became much more accessible in the New World. Speaking of animals, Europeans also brought with them honeybees that were not only useful for their honey, but also for their wax. I mean, of course it's true there were honey-producing bees in the Americas at that time, and stingless ones at that, though they didn't produce nearly as much as the European honeybee. I know what you're thinking, but don't worry. We're not going to be talking about mad honey on this episode. Actually, um, as far as I know, there was never any mad honey made in the New World at all. So, there you go. While the Americans didn't have much to offer Europeans when it came to animals, they did have a lot to offer when it came to plants. Fair warning, if you've never heard of this concept before, your mind might be blown to know the types of plants that came from the New World to the Old World, and that until the 16th century were unheard of in Eurasia and Africa. From the Americas? Let's start off with plants that, while delicious, weren't going to change the world all that much. Pineapples, vanilla, chocolate. But then there were some really big, important crops that came from the Andes region that we're going to be talking about a lot. Peanuts and potatoes. I've spent a lot of time in the country of Ecuador, and I can tell you that when you go to the markets, there are tons of potatoes that vary in size, shape, and even color. Along with potatoes, there were also some other major root crops that made their way across the Atlantic, namely sweet potatoes and cassava. Now, when it comes to cassava, this plant has a lot of names, depending on who's consuming it, like yuca, manioc, or tapioca. Cassava in particular was very important because it's the most calorie-dense plant food in the world. Now, this is of huge importance, especially in poor areas that don't always have a steady food supply. And to make it even better, they grow in very tropical regions, so they're available to many more types of people. In fact, many of the foods that came from the New World were much more calorically dense than those you would normally find in the Old World. This resulted in huge population growths, with the population of Europe almost doubling in more than 200 years. Also, diabetes. But speaking of diabetes, as one does, we also have to mention probably the single most important crop to come out of the Americas. Corn. Corn is probably so important to history that we might even end up doing a foundational episode on it. Now, for the sake of not alienating listeners from countries outside of North America, which apparently we have quite a few, welcome to the show, Whenever we talk about corn in the show, we'll generally refer to it as maize or Indian corn, depending on the context. The reason for this is because corn is still used by a large portion of the world to just mean grain. Maize is generally considered the more scholarly word when describing that particular plant, 
and if you know anything about me, you know that I am quite scholarly. Along with these calorically dense foods, there are also some major flavorful foods like tomatoes and chilies. <laughs> okay, now just as, as an aside, I, I find this hilarious. A lot of times when I write, um, I have a lot of writing to do at one time, so I'll oftentimes use voice dictation um, to write my words so that I don't, so I don't cramp up. And every time I mention the word chilies uh, in Microsoft Word, it keeps typing it out as chilies, as in chilies the restaurant. <laughs> but, but you know what? Chilies the restaurant would also not exist if it was not for the Columbian Exchange. So, touche Microsoft Word. We can also think about extremely nutritious foods that we use on a regular basis, like beans and squashes. Of course, there are also more exotic fruits or vegetables that came out of the area, like passion fruit. But the ones we listed before are generally the more important ones when it comes to history later on. But don't think that Europeans just took and didn't give in this exchange. Tons of old world foods made their way back to the Americas and became an integral part of both the cuisine and culture. Um, alliums, such as onions and garlic, made their way on the scene pretty early. Most grains that are used, such as wheat, barley, rice, and oats, were also brought from the old world. Now, even though we mentioned that beans came from the new world, Certain types of legumes like chickpeas, lentils, and broad beans, they were brought over to the Americas from the Old World. Ironically, there's also a lot of tropical fruits that we associate with Latin America that are actually from the Old World. Uh, these include papaya and bananas, by extension plantains. Certain foods that we think about as being native to the land of North America uh, were brought over as well, such as apples, pears, citrus, and peaches. <laughs> okay, another aside here. Uh, when we're talking about peaches, I just want to go on here on another tangent because, you know, that's what I do. Just so you know where we stand. This show is just as much about me teaching you as it is as being therapy for me. I was, uh, remember I said I was in Ecuador for quite some time and there was a city called Milagro in the coast and they were known for their pineapples. In fact, if you go into the city square, there's a giant statue of a pineapple. Um, there's an expression they use down there that says, yeah, I need that like someone in Milagro needs a pineapple. Um, I guess it'd be like the equivalent of, I need that like I need another hole in the head. I kid you not, when I was down there, I ordered a Hawaiian pizza, and instead of pineapples, they put peaches on it. And to be honest, that still keeps me up at night. Anyway, these were the typical things that we considered the more positive side of the Colombian exchange. On the other hand, one of the smallest but more consequential items that were traded between the worlds was disease. Famously, the Spanish and other Europeans brought smallpox with them, a disease that many of these people were naturally immune to because they'd spent so much time around cattle and therefore had an immunity to cowpox. But there were plenty of other diseases that Europeans brought with them, chickenpox, influenza, mumps, measles, and others. For a lot of us, some of those diseases are just considered you know, childhood bumps in the road, but there was nothing even close to these types of diseases in the New World. And as a result, they spread like a plague, killing millions upon millions of indigenous peoples, often before Europeans even set foot on their soil. Conservative estimates say that more than 50% of the entire population of the Americas was wiped out by European diseases, while some estimates go as high as 90%. These diseases caused major political upheaval that made Spanish conquests a breeze, really. In both the Aztec and Inca empires, rulers had died as a result of European diseases, which had resulted in civil wars, making these people like fodder before the Europeans even fired a single bullet. The only disease that spread from the Americas to Europe uh, was syphilis. 
<laughs> the funniest thing, okay, I know obviously syphilis uh, is very bad. If people have it and goes untreated, not only can it kill them, but it can it basically put holes in your brain and, and just make for a horrible existence. But it's something that's kind of funny about the time was that everyone was so ashamed of having syphilis that they wanted to naturally put the blame on other people. So the Italians called it the French disease, the French called it the Naples disease, the Russians called it the Polish disease, and the Polish called it the German disease. And basically every country wanted to blame somebody else. Little did they know that it actually came from sailors that had just come back from the New World. In fact, the first reported cases of syphilis were 1493. So there was really uh, no time of hesitation between uh, discovery of the New World by the Spanish and then bringing syphilis back. Another negative result, rats. Uh, rats definitely found their way to the Americas on, on Spanish ships, and they're very much still here. Perhaps one of the most uh, major negative parts of the Colombian exchange was that of the triangular trade and African slave trade in general. While many Europeans came to South America to look over mines and plantations, or people went to North America to start their own plantations or their own opportunities, African slaves were often brought in to fill in the gaps in labor. In North America, they were brought in primarily as laborers on plantations and other farms. In Latin America, they were there to fill in for the indigenous people that were just dropping like flies. When the Spanish first started their colonies, they started to use indigenous peoples for all sorts of labor. And we'll talk more about that in many other episodes. When these people began to die rapidly, either because of disease or mistreatment, African slaves were brought in to fill in the gaps there. Another thing that they were brought in to do was to do some of the more dangerous jobs. Uh, for some reason, the Spanish respected the indigenous peoples marginally more than Africans. And so while they would typically have indigenous people working in the fields, they would send Africans to work in the mines looking for precious metals. And these jobs often had life expectancies of just a few months um, or some of the more labor-intensive uh, sugar harvesting. Either way, not a great existence whatsoever. In addition to the human cost, there have been massive ecological repercussions from the Colombian Exchange as well. These include many native crops being forgotten or outcompeted, which, which naturally leads to them going extinct. Monoculture has become a huge part of agriculture since the time of the Colombian Exchange, both as a result of new plants and animals being shared amongst the hemispheres, as well as cash cropping due to wide tracts of newly conquered lands. At the end of the day, it's hard to say whether or not the Colombian Exchange was a net good or bad. It's something that happened so long ago that has such wide-reaching effects on our society as a whole that uh, I don't think we can really have an objective opinion on it. It's like wondering whether or not your parents should have ended up together. Yeah, there might be pros or cons for either side of the argument, but, but you wouldn't exist if they didn't, so obviously you're going to be biased. I think about myself as an Italian-American born in New York. If the Colombian Exchange had never happened, not only would I never have been born, but most parts of my culture and my identity probably wouldn't exist either, even if I was. At the beginning, I mentioned Italy not having tomatoes, which, which obviously would prevent us from having quite a few of our dishes, but that also includes zucchini, pasta fagioli, stuffed peppers, or any other of the dishes I grew up enjoying that identified us as a family. Of course, that's just talking about food, and while some of you might be rolling your eyes that I would obsess about something like this, the fact is that our cuisines really define us as a people. We don't all enjoy music, we don't all enjoy art or traveling, but the one thing we all have in common is that we all eat. And by extension, as author Taro Gomi once wisely stated in her book, Everyone Poops, quote, 
everyone poops. Food really defines us not just as countries, but even as families and individuals. If you were to look at the list of the vast amounts of plants and animals that pass from one hemisphere to the other, you would be shocked by how limited your food identity would be if you had lived on one side of the world or the other prior to the Columbian Exchange. Ironically, the writer of the book, The Columbian Exchange, Alfred Crosby, who we mentioned before, he very much was of the opinion that the Columbian Exchange was a negative thing and that we are still paying for the results of that even today. As somebody who obviously is not on the same level as a Harvard historian, but who enjoys looking in the past and trying to make sense of it all, what I would say is one of the most important things I hope you'll take away from not just this episode, but the show in general, is that history is history. It's very difficult to judge history as a whole because there's really nothing we can do about it. Everything that happened already happened and there's nothing you and I can change. But understanding how we got to where we are is really the heart and soul of the show. As you listen to these stories of the past, try your best not to create any judgment, but really just try to understand. The Greek philosopher Aristotle once said, the mark of an educated mind is being able to entertain a thought without accepting it. You don't have to agree with the decisions that people of the past made, but by doing your best to understand them, you really understand who we are as the modern human race. As I mentioned earlier, this is going to be the first of many foundational series episodes. I'll sprinkle these in between normal episodes, and we'll be covering topics such as cash crops, slavery, the development of certain foods, and other topics so that we can give them the time they need for a general understanding, and then go into depth into these stories so we can see both the forest and the trees. Something else you can expect in the near future are going to be multiple part episodes. So far, everything has been relatively episodic, but there are some stories that are just too complicated to really cover in one episode, and it wouldn't really make any sense if we started the story and then continued the story later on in the season or next season. One that I'm really excited about, and it's going to be coming up soon, is going to be that of the Opium Wars and the connection with tea, as well as others. Thank you so much for listening to this episode, and we'll be getting back to our normal format next week. Until then, remember that we all write our own history, so make yours delicious. Delicious.